Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel anytime. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. They call Finland the land of the midnight sun because approximately one-third of its territory creeps into the Arctic Circle. Meaning that by the time June comes around, the sun doesn't set until around midnight, and never even dips below the horizon. Conversely, during the winter, night lasts for more than 24 hours at a stretch. So when summer does arrive, the Finnish people really like to take advantage of the sun while they still have it. Lake Bodum is situated about 13 miles away from Helsinki and has long been a popular tourist destination for campers, swimmers, and fishermen. On the morning of June 5, 1960, Ruth Colley was out on a walk with her five-year-old daughter through the birch and pine woods that grew along the eastern peninsula. When she spotted a small beige tent that caught her eye, Ruth kept her distance but from her vantage point, she could tell that the tent had collapsed and that there were a tangle of human limbs poking out from beneath the canvas. From what she could tell, there were two teenage girls laying side by side with another boy lying slightly apart from them. There was also another boy who was more exposed than the others. He was lying on his back, mostly on top of the tent with his legs bent. There was blood in his face and flies buzzed around him. Even despite this ominous sign, Ruth still tried to convince herself they might be sleeping. She could see a few bottles of alcohol scattered nearby which made her imagine the four teens might possibly have gotten into a drunken brawl and were now sleeping it off. She decided not to disturb them and instead led her daughter away from the campsite to go locate her husband and son who were out fishing on the lake. Ruth spotted them out on the water about 200 meters away and she signaled for them to come back to shore. After her husband, Marty, rode back to dry land, she informed him of what she had seen. Marty became curious, so he marched up the ridge to investigate for himself. He instantly recognized these teens as the same group he'd observed yesterday evening entering the park. At around 5 p.m., Marty saw the two young men zipping by on two motorcycles with the girls who were both laughing and clinging to the boys' backs. Marty had a sick feeling in his gut as he realized the tent these young people were tangled into hadn't just collapsed. Someone had slashed through the tent ropes and canvas with a knife. By that point, Marty and his family weren't the only people in the area who began to notice there was something off with the scene either. 
A few other witnesses in the area had come across the collapsed tent, and the young people who lay still within it as well. As the morning wore on and none of these teenagers moved, it soon became apparent to everyone they were dead. At 11.15 a.m., a carpenter who had been working in the area rushed from the campground to a nearby construction site, where he phoned the police and told them they needed to come quickly. There had been a slaughter at Lake Bodum. I'm Nate Hale, coming to you live from my secret alien podcasting studio underneath Lake Baikal, and this is The Conspirators. Nils Gustafsson and Seppo Boisman had been best friends since they were 12 years old. They were born just a few months apart, and as soon as they met, they became practically inseparable. Nils and Seppo did everything together. They played together. They went camping and fishing together. They graduated high school together. And afterwards, they both studied to become electricians and went on to work at the same plant. When Seppo turned 18, he began dating a 15-year-old girl from Espoo named Anya Tuliki Maki, who went by her middle name. Tuliki would go on to introduce her own best friend, Myla Ermely Bjorklund, who also went by her middle name to Nils. And soon they became a couple as well. After school let out for the summer holiday, the quartet decided to go camping together along the shores of Lake Bodum, which was a popular tourist destination near the southern tip of Finland. The two girls begged their parents to allow them to go. Their parents knew the two boys were older, but they seemed trustworthy and eventually they gave in and allowed it. Seppo and Nils had less trouble convincing their parents to say yes. Lake Bodum was only about a half hour away from their home in Helsinki, so if any trouble occurred, their parents knew help wasn't far away. Although it was revealed later that Nils neglected to mention to his parents that they were planning on taking their girlfriends with them. The boys managed to get their hands on some bottles of alcohol and they planned on making their holiday getaway into a real party with the girls. Seppo borrowed a canvas tent from work and they loaded up their packs with snacks, sausages, fishing gear, some knives, and other camping tools. They decided to head out on the weekend of the Christian holiday known as the Pentecost. There is an old Finnish saying that if you didn't wake up on the morning of the Pentecost next to your sweetheart, then you wouldn't have one all summer. So that's precisely what the boys planned on doing. On their way into the campground, they stopped at a small kiosk where they bought some chewing gum and soft drinks that they planned on using to mix with the booze later on. They found a perfect spot to set up their tent along the eastern peninsula. It was near enough to other people, but also somewhat secluded since it was partially sheltered behind another peninsula. They set the tent up with the opening facing away from the beach to give themselves a bit more privacy. They carved tent stakes out of branches they found and pounded them into the earth. In truth, it wasn't a very big tent. It was really made for two people at best, but the quartet had already agreed to squeeze in as best they could. And if that meant squeezing in tight with the girls, the boys just saw that as another bonus. Two of the earliest known witnesses who noticed something odd about the campsite were a couple of teenage boys who were out hiking through the woods in the wee hours of the morning when they heard a voice in the distance that startled them. 
The boys climbed a ridge to get a better look, and that's where they spotted Seppo and Nils' motorcycles, standing in a clearing near the collapsed tent. It was still quite early at that time, but the boys were both certain they could see a figure lying on top of the tent. They weren't positive, but it looked as if the person might have been moving around a little. The two teenagers later told the authorities they also saw a man wearing a light-colored shirt leaving the clearing where the tent stood. At around 6 a.m., another 14-year-old boy was waiting on top of a rocky outcropping for one of his friends to join him fishing. When he, too, spotted a strange man walking away from the direction of the tent before disappearing into the woods out of sight. He described the man as being of average height, with light brown hair, a light-colored shirt, and dark pants. When the police finally arrived shortly before noon, the campsite had already been trampled over by dozens of curiosity seekers. And this only got worse as the day wore on and the police failed to properly secure the crime scene. Seppo Boisman was found lying underneath the tent along with the two girls, Tulikimaki and Ermalee Bjorklin. All three of them had been bludgeoned and stabbed to death. What was even more shocking, though, was that despite Nils Gustafson being wounded equally as badly as the others, he was somehow still alive. The entire left side of Nils's face was badly bruised and his eye on that side was sealed shut. His jaw and cheekbone were both fractured, and he'd been stabbed repeatedly with a knife. One of those stab wounds had gone straight through his face, exposing his teeth. The other three teens suffered similar injuries. Forensic evidence showed that whomever the attacker had been, he or she had attacked them from outside the tent, beating them with a blunt object like a lead pipe or a club, as well as slashing at them with a knife while they were trapped inside. Seppo's body was found with his jeans unbuttoned at the waist and he had suffered multiple skull fractures, as well as several knife wounds. Taliki's body was lying face down with her yellow blouse pulled partially up her torso. She too had been bludgeoned to death, as well as suffering several fatal stab wounds. But it was clear that, for whatever reason, Ermaly received the worst of the attack. Her body lay partially out of the tent, indicating either she had crawled out or the killer had dragged her out. Her jeans were pulled down below her knees, and her blouse had been yanked up over her torso, exposing her bra. She had been stabbed 15 times in the neck and shoulders most, if not all of which, would have occurred after death. Like the others, she too had suffered a brutal beating. It had multiple fractures along her skull and jaw. Unlike the others, though, it seemed as if the killer had focused his or her rage on Ermaly in particular. Despite an extensive search by the police and even later on by the Finnish military, the murderer weapons were never recovered. Police did discover two table knives and two more knives used for fishing that had belonged to Nils and Seppo. But none of these had been used in the attack. Police collected most of the liquor bottles the boys had brought with them, although one was missing. One of the bottles that was found did contain a strange fingerprint that didn't match any of the four teens. But that print was never matched to any suspect. All the teens' wallets and IDs were missing too. The boys were known to have brought watches with them, but those were missing as well. Also taken were the motorcycle keys, but curiously not the bikes themselves. 
And perhaps most strangely of all, the boy's shoes were not found with them by the tent. Later on, police found Nils's leather slip-on loafers stained with drops of blood, carefully hidden beneath a rock about 500 meters away from the tent. They also found Seppo's shoes discarded across the road. This was a particularly unusual clue because it seemed to indicate that the killer may have actually worn Nils's shoes for some unknown reason as he fled the scene of the crime. Police were criticized in the newspapers for not properly securing the crime scene as well as doing a poor job searching for evidence. They eventually brought in both the Finnish military and some experienced divers to search the lake and surrounding forest for the murder weapon or other clues, but nothing of major interest was ever found. The story of these brutal murders became the top news story in Finland. Soon, the police began screening hundreds of tips that poured in of suspicious characters whom people suspected of having something to do with the crime. One soldier's parents turned their own son in after they'd reported he'd been acting suspiciously. Police arrested a man from a nearby village who was found in possession of a bloody knife. Although the blood was tested and it didn't belong to any of the teenagers and soon the man was set free. Several reports came in of a vagrant lurking in the woods near the crime scene. When this man was finally located and brought into the station, he was so blind drunk they had to let him sober up overnight before they could question him. They were then able to locate some witnesses who provided the man a solid alibi for the time of the murders. Police were obviously anxious to question the only living witness to the murders, Nils Gustafsson. But they were forced to wait for four days for Nils to regain consciousness in the hospital. Even after Nils woke up, they remained frustrated because Nils claimed to have no memory of the crime itself. In fact, the first thing he asked for after he opened his one good eye was where his best friend Seppo was. Nils's memory remained foggy at best, but he was able to corroborate some of the known details leading up to the night of the attack. He told the police that in the early morning hours sometime between 4 and 6 a.m., he recalled Seppo getting up out of the tent to go fishing. This woke him up as well, and he decided to tag along and go for an early morning swim. But the water was too cold for him, so he decided to head back. Seppo wasn't getting any bites, so he returned to the tent as well. Then Nils said he, Seppo, and the girls all packed into the tent once again to try to get some more sleep. And that's the last thing he remembered. Investigators kept interrogating Nils, but he was unable to fill in many of the key details they wanted to know. Why was he the only one found completely outside the tent? Why did the killer focus his fury on Ermely? And most importantly of all, who did it? Nils couldn't say. On June 23rd, Nils was discharged from the hospital, after which he was immediately taken to the police station for another round of questioning. Police had discovered a songbook that belonged to Tuliki that contained a few brief notes she had jotted down inside like a diary that seemed to corroborate the few details Nils could recall. The first line said that Nils and Seppo were drunk. The next line said they were all up at 2 a.m. And the third line said Seppo went for a walk in the woods. Police tried bringing Nils back to the scene of the crime, hoping it would jog his memory, only it didn't do any good. They later on tried another tactic to attempt to recover Nils's memory by having a psychiatrist hypnotize him. During these hypnosis sessions, Nils was finally able to fill in a few more details. He said he had a vague memories of hearing the girls screaming, and of them all panicking as the tent collapsed over them. 
Then he recalled someone slashing through the canvas with a blade and viciously beating them with what he thought might be an iron pipe. He was able to recall the sight of Ermalee's face covered in blood. He was also able to give police a description of a suspect to a police sketch artist. The sketch the artist drew was that of a man in his 30s with a pimply face and long, straight hair. That sketch would be distributed to the public and lead to the arrests of nine suspects who resembled the drawing. But none of those arrests went anywhere after it was found that all the suspects had solid alibis for the night of the murders. Over the years, several other arrests were made in the Lake Bodum murders, but only a small handful of these have ever been considered credible suspects. One of the first viable suspects the police looked at was a violent criminal named Penty Soinenen, who allegedly confessed to committing the murders to a fellow inmate in the mid-1960s. Although it is true that Soinenen lived near the murder scene back in 1960, most investigators have long since ruled him out as a suspect because he would have only been about 14 years old at the time, and it was believed it would have been unlikely someone so young could have overpowered the four victims. Besides that, there was no physical evidence to tie him to the crimes other than his purported confession. Even still, it is notable to mention that Soinenen hanged himself on June 6, 1969, almost nine years to the day of the murders. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Other than Penty Soinen, there was a much more credible suspect who also lived in the area. One who was known to have a violent temper and who liked to direct that rage toward campers. This was Carl Valdemar Gilstrom, and he is often referred to in the press as the Kiosk Man, because he was the proprietor of the very same kiosk the teens stopped at on their way into the park to purchase soft drinks. According to Gilstrom's wife, it was she who served the four teenagers that evening, but later that night after she returned home, she told her husband about the campers. At the time of the murders, Gilstrom was 51 years old and he had a notorious reputation for having an irrational hatred toward the local tourists. He was a heavy drinker with known anger management issues. One story about him claimed he liked to hide razor blades in the apples that grew from his trees to discourage children from picking them. It's been said that Gilstrom would sometimes threaten people away from his property with a shotgun and was even known to fire at them from time to time. Once a truck driver told police he was driving down the road that ran in front of Gilstrom's property when his windshield exploded. Gilstrom was briefly arrested for shooting at the man before being released. Another thing Gilstrom liked to do to discourage people getting too close to his property was laying down homemade spike strips across the road made of wooden boards with nails protruding from them to blow out a car's tires. Some of the most damning evidence that points toward Gilstrom, though, is the fact that he was known to carry a length of iron pipe in his car, and he would often walk around with a hunting knife on his belt. On some occasions, Gilstrom was alleged to have snuck up on some unsuspecting campers and cut the lines to their tents using that knife. 
On top of all that, just a few days after the murders, Gilstrom was seen pouring concrete into a well in his property for unknown reasons. Police have been criticized for never searching that well, although plenty of would-be sleuths have speculated if Gilstrom might have buried the murder weapons or other evidence stolen from the murdered teens in there. But police said they dismissed Gilstrom as a suspect because his wife provided him an alibi at the time of the murders. She said she was sleeping in the bedroom at the time while her husband slept in the kitchen. Although they weren't sleeping in the same room, she remained absolutely certain he never left any time that night. Besides Carl Gilstrom, there is yet another major suspect in the murders. The night after the crime occurred, a man named Hans Osman showed up at the Helsinki Surgical Hospital behaving suspiciously. He had dirt under his fingernails and he was wearing dark colored overalls covered in reddish stains. He claimed to be suffering from internal pains, but when doctors poked his abdomen, the man just giggled. He appeared to be faking whatever was wrong with him. His strange behavior stood out so much to the medical staff who took care of him that one of the medical interns bagged and kept his overalls to turn over to the police. Osman aroused more suspicions after a mysterious woman who was not his wife showed up at the hospital and spoke to him for hours. Osman would continue to return to the hospital multiple times complaining of mysterious abdominal pains and raising further suspicions. He told the doctors he was a former Nazi prison guard who fell out of favor after he began dating a Jewish woman. He was later captured by the Russians and claimed he went on to become a KGB agent. At one point, he even showed one of the doctors a German magazine article about an unsolved murder and told him that if he had done it, he wouldn't get caught. He then joked with the surgeon that he too was skilled with a knife. Only his patients never survived. Perhaps the thing that most directly ties Osman to the murders is a striking resemblance to one of the main sketches that were released of a man seen in the area at the time of the murders. This sketch shows a rather striking-looking individual with large protruding eyes, long, straight blonde hair, and a large mouth. Osman is the spitting image of that sketch. Even more curiously, shortly after the sketch was released to the public, Osman shaved all his hair off. There's a rather famous photograph that was taken at the funeral for the three murder victims that shows the crowd of mourners all staring in the direction of the casket. All of them but one. There is one notable individual in the center of the crowd staring off in a different direction. This man has long blonde hair, bulging eyes, and a large mouth. And he looks an awful lot both like the sketch of the suspect as well as Hans Osman. One of the medical interns who treated Osman became so convinced of the man's guilt in the Lake Bodum murders that he actually went on to write three books on the subject, laying out his case that Osman was guilty. He believes that the reason police stopped looking into Hans Osman as a potential suspect was a political cover-up because of the man's former life as a KGB agent. In 1997, a former crime commissioner turned journalist named Matty Palawaro interviewed Osman a year before his death. And he claimed Osman confessed to both the Lake Bodum murders as well as another infamous unsolved murder from a few years before that. In May 1953, a 17-year-old girl named Ali Kaliki Sari 
vanished while bicycling home from a prayer meeting in Maricarvia. Her remains were found five months later in a bog. Osman had long been a suspect in the girl's death, and Palo claimed Osman admitted to killing her in an accident when his chauffeur ran her over. Osman said he and his chauffeur worked together to hide the girl's body in the bog. After that, Palo outright asked the then 73-year-old man if he killed the teenagers at Lake Bodum. And all Osman would say is he would, quote, not talk about the details. Palo took this as an admission of guilt. But in 2005, police unsealed their files on Osman, revealing the reason they stopped considering him a viable suspect was because the man had a solid alibi for June 4th and 5th. On the night of the murders, Osman was sleeping with his girlfriend in his girlfriend's sister's home, along with the sister's husband, all of whom claimed Osman was with them all night. Police also said they tested the stained overalls Osman wore to the hospital the night after the murders. And they said the red stains were just paint. In March 2004, nearly 44 years after the event, police arrested a new suspect who shocked the country. This was none other than Nils Gustafsson. The Finnish National Bureau of Investigation made the bold claim that advances in DNA testing and forensic technology had given them the major breakthrough they'd been looking for in the case. According to the prosecutor, forensic bloodstain analysis pointed clearly toward Nils being the murderer. Blood analysis showed that all three of Nils' friends' blood turned up on his shoes. The only one of the quartet whose blood wasn't on them was Nils. This is why they said he went to such trouble to carefully hide his shoes from the police. The prosecutors developed a theory that Nils had turned into an unruly, belligerent drunk on the night of the murders and that he became so obnoxious his friends kicked him out of the tent. According to the prosecutor's theory, Nils was furious because Ermely rejected his drunken advances. Things escalated quickly from there, until Nils savagely attacked his friends in the tent. During the ensuing brawl, one of them must have kicked Nils in the face, breaking his jaw. After that, Nils completely lost control and beat and stabbed his friends to death, with the worst attacks being saved for Ermely, who rejected him. The defense argued that this scenario was ludicrous based on how extensive Nils' own injuries were. They said his injuries were so grievous and life-threatening it would have been physically impossible to have committed the murders. After Nils was arrested, another witness came forward and told a story that bolstered the prosecutor's case. This now 61-year-old woman had been 17 at the time of the murders. She said that on the night of June 4th, she and some friends were also camping near Lake Bodum when they all encountered Nils Gustafson and his friends. She recalled Nils being very drunk and very angry that night and that all three of his friends had ostracized him. But the defense was able to poke some major holes in the woman's story, though, because she was unable to recall many more details than that. For example, she couldn't describe what the four teenagers looked like, nor could she remember the names of her own friends she was camping with that night. During Nils's trial, the prosecution brought forth a jailhouse witness who claimed that Nils confessed to him to killing his friends. This witness claimed he asked Nils if he'd done it, and Nils replied, What's done is done, and that even if he was convicted, he'd only get 15 years. The problem is, the prosecution couldn't produce any records corroborating this conversation ever took place, 
And even if Nils did say something like this, it's not exactly a damning confession. On October 7, 2005, Nils Gustafson was acquitted of all charges. The court explained the verdict was due to the prosecutor being unable to provide any solid evidence that Nils committed the murders, as well as failing to prove any real motive for the crimes. After he was acquitted, Nils received a cash settlement from the Finnish government for the pain and anguish he suffered during his trial. It's been more than six decades since the murders at Lake Bodum occurred, and to this day there are still no clear answers to who might have done it. Since then, the story has become mythologized as something straight out of a horror film. And in fact, in 2016, a slasher film named Lake Bodum came out that was based on the murders. The story even inspired a Finnish death metal band to take the name, The Children of Bodum. To a lot of investigators who have studied the case, the strongest suspect remains Carl Gilstrom, the so-called kiosk man. Not only was he known to show anger towards campers, even going so far as to throw rocks at them and even cut their tent ropes. But it turns out his airtight alibi that caused the Finnish police to stop looking at him as a viable suspect might not have been so airtight after all. Once, while Gilstrom's wife was in the hospital with breast cancer, she reportedly confided in a friend that she had lied about her husband's alibi that night. She told the friend that Gilstrom had left the house for several hours in the early morning, and he offered her no explanation as to where he'd gone. She said that she'd kept his secret for many years because she was terrified of Carl's violent temper and what he might do to her and the children if she told anyone. But Gilstrom's wife only had to live in fear for a few more years, though. One night, nine years after the murders, Carl Gilstrom reportedly got drunk with a neighbor named Borier when he began to act strangely. Gilstrom's demeanor quickly changed from sharp anger to utter despair. Borea asked what was bothering him when Gilstrom suddenly blurted out that he had killed the teenagers at Lake Bodum, and he was constantly afraid of getting caught. Borea wasn't sure he believed him, but he did tell the man that if he truly was responsible for the murders, the least he could do would be to spare his family the grief and drown himself. That evening, Carl Gilstrom didn't return home. Soon, his family began to grow worried and his son went looking for his father. Gilstrom's son found him eventually, or at least he found the man's remains. You see, Carl Gilstrom drowned himself that night, and his body was found floating in Lake Bodum. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Ale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to John, Jennifer, and the remarkably named Tiger F. and Walter. I really and truly appreciate your support, and the same goes for all my other patrons. Right now, patrons of the show can get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of exclusive bonus mini-episodes. I also have some new bonuses in the works that I'm hoping to be able to announce soon, so stay tuned. Another great way you can help support the Conspirators is to check out our merch store, where you can find all sorts of Conspirators shirts, mugs, phone cases, and even more. If you're interested in Patreon or our merch store, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help us out that won't cost a dime is to subscribe and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's charts and spreads the love to more people. If you're not on Apple, 
Not to worry. You can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. Elsewhere, I encourage you to check us out on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. You can even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I love hearing your comments and suggestions, and I've even got some really great episode suggestions from listeners, including this very episode you just listened to right now. Thanks again for tuning in and listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.